week. This may sound like a familiar passage of Scripture because it is the exact same psalm that we looked at last Sunday. And we're going to look at it again. Psalm 25. In our series of the lyrics of knowing God, hear this psalm, the psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my sins. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and testimonies. For Your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will He instruct in the way that He should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and His offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, who make known to them His covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. My integrity and uprightness preserve I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all of his troubles. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is a psalm of David, and most likely it was a psalm that David composed and finally composed in his later years. In fact, David was probably a septuagenarian when he wrote this in his 70s. He died at age 80, if you recall. Good long life, long live the king. He did. Ruled over the kingdom for 40 years. David had grown in his faith. Now, he had a remarkable start. A little shepherd boy looking after his father's flocks, outdoors beholding the Lord in the stars and in nature. David said he meditated upon the law of God day and night. I don't know how much of the law David had. He might have had the entire Pentateuch. He might have had access to some manuscripts. I don't know what he had, no doubt. A good bit of that had been laid to memory as early as he could remember. But David said that he 
had meditated upon the law of God day and night. Did that, he came to know the Lord. These are the lyrics of knowing God. This is a man who has had a long walk with God. This is a man who has really been through about everything that is possibly imaginable. As we mentioned last week, and as we mentioned quite often when we look at a psalm, we tell you to look for three things in the psalm. Look for David. He's there. Uh, or Asaph or Moses or whoever wrote the psalm. Most of them are written by David. Think about his life, his challenges, his soul. He mentions his soul a lot, his entire person and what all he went through. Uh, my earlier years as I was studying in the ministry, I was absolutely fascinated from middle school years with the study of theology. My father was a pastor, and I remember getting in his study and reading his systematic when I was 6th, 7th, 8th grade age. Loving every bit of it. Loved those big words. Loved all that, that doctrine, that truth. And uh, just... just uh, was always interested in what is God like? Who is God? What, how do we know a God? How do we know about God? What, uh, what can we know? And just challenged with this, um, the divine. And as I read the Bible and studied the Bible and began to study it in college and a little more carefully, uh, I saw all the theology that was there as much as I could possibly see. All about God. But as I've studied and preached over 45 years now, I, I am coming to see not only is there incredible theology in the Bible, as you would expect, and the Bible, you know, is not just a single book. It confuses a lot of, if you're a new believer or you're young to Bible study and new to Bible study, you might be confused because the Bible is not just a book. It is a library. Uh, each book has its own context and its historical background and its own authorship. And over a period of one and a half millennia was the, was the books of the Bible written. So it's, uh, uh, it takes a little uh, perception to go in there and sort of sort through a lot of that. But even as I studied the Bible from the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, to the Epistles and the Apocalypse, I'm beginning to see more and more and I wish I'd have seen this 40 years ago, but I'm beginning to see more and more the Bible is not theology only. It is anthropology. It is psychology. It is a study of us. The Bible reads us as much as we think we read the Bible. And no one does this more in the theological realm than David. It's been said that there are no doctrines God taught in the New Testament that were not already taught in the book of Psalms. The sovereignty of God, the aseity of God, the infinite wisdom of God, and all the things that you may call the attributes of God, communicable and incommunicable attributes, all of them set forth pretty clearly in the book of Psalms. David knew the Lord. The Lord had revealed Himself to David in many ways, obviously, and inspired him to write the but the Psalms were the prayer book of Israel as well as the hymn book of Israel. And David had come to know the Lord. And by the time he wrote this Psalm, we can begin to see it. We looked at it last week kind of in an overview fashion, noting a few things there. 
But not only do you want to look at David when you look at the Psalms, you want to look at yourself. You're there. It is a psychoanalysis of your soul, your troubles, your difficulties, your emotions, your experiences, your ups and your downs, your strengths, your weaknesses. They're there. They're spelled out. A lot of them are spelled out in this very psalm. The psalms have you in them. But then the psalms also have a third person, and that person is Christ. Every psalm has some kind of reference, either strong reference in naming the name of the Lord, or even oblique and glancing references, what we would call types and shadows of the Lord. And He's here in this psalm as well. And that's what we look principally at David last time. Let's look at a little more that it says about us. It was interesting as I began to look at that to see the the problems and the issues that are mentioned. They're only mentioned in a single word or phrase. And you have to fill in the blank. For example, here are David's problems. Here are David's issues in his life. A long life. He has foes, enemies. It's mentioned in verse 2 and again in verse 19. There are probably people, individuals, that war against his soul. We know that Goliath was not near the foe of David that King Saul turned out to be. And that may be true in your life. That which is an obvious foe that comes to you snarling and cursing and breathing out threatenings and steam and fire and venom coming out, you recognize that. But sometimes your worst foes come to you as a, a personal friend, someone with a relationship, a relative perhaps, like King Saul was to David. King Saul was a sponsor of, King Dave, of young David. He was a promoter of David, a champion of David. He even developed a codependency upon David. It was David's playing on the harp that was the only thing in the kingdom that could soothe the troubled soul of King Saul. He needed David. And yet, he sought his life. He sought to kill him when the jealousy set in. When the word began to be sung in the courtyards and in the marketplace and in the streets that Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul then went after David with a heart of murder and vengeance and stayed after him all the days. David had foes. He had people that were trying to probably... David had just gone through the experience or was, was very close to the experience, uh, not too distant past, where Absalom, his son, had rebelled against him and led a large portion of the nation to dethrone David and to take his, take his uh, throne. His son, 
a son he loved, by the way, son he admired. In fact, probably, if you read between the lines, was probably the son that was going to get the inheritance and was probably going to be a warrior, going to be the heir. But, of course, the Lord had other plans with King Solomon, young Solomon. But David was betrayed by this rebellious son. David had foes. And the thing that he wants the foes to not do, that his prayer is, and by the way, this, this particular psalm is a mix of prayer. There are three portions that are prayer, And then there are two portions of the psalm mixed in there that are meditations or musings. So we have David musing and meditating upon things of the Lord. Um, for example, verses 8 to 10 is one of those examples of a meditation. Good and upright is the Lord. He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness to those who keep His covenant. This is not a prayer. This is David reminding himself and observing even more clearly in a focused manner the good graces of God. God's love is mercy, is steadfastness. And mixed in with all of this prayer calling upon the Lord, David is, is wanting the Lord to protect him from his foes and not embarrass him, not just in a social embarrassment way, but not to humiliate him. In other words, to bring him down from his throne. Let me just take a moment. This is Ascension Sunday. Ascension Sunday is that Sunday, six weeks after Easter, where we celebrate Christ's ascension, His exaltation. And it takes threefold manner of the Christ is the resurrection of Christ being raised from the dead, and then His ascension being raised from earth back to the heavens from which He came. But then there's a third facet of ascension and exaltation, and that is being exalted and seated upon the eternal throne of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. And that's what David is praying for, that that throne, humiliated, will not be brought down. That that throne, in fact, will not be a defeated throne, but will be a victorious throne. That throne will not simply be a temporal throne for so many years, or maybe so many uh, members of a dynasty, but that it will be an eternal throne. That's what the very last verse of this psalm is. It's David praying for God to redeem Israel, to raise up Israel. The true Israel of God in the Bible is Jesus Christ Himself. There's one psalm. He's the Redeemer. And this prayer is that the Redeemer will in fact be successful, will actually redeem the nation, and that that throne will be an eternal throne, an exalted throne, an omnipotent throne, a throne that will never fail, a throne that will never end. And this is David praying the eternal purposes and counsels of God in the raising up of Christ upon that throne. That's just a little aside. We'll get back to the sermon. 
David had foes, enemies. Do you have enemies? Are there enemies of your soul? Who are they? Or do they look like Goliath? Or do they look like King Saul? Do they look like Absalom? Another thing that David prays is the Lord will deliver him from dangers. Way to read the life of David, I read an interesting study years ago by a very liberal Bible scholar who basically made the point that David was probably one of the most savage men that ever lived in human history. He was kind of, uh, of an ISIS character of his day, that he lived by treachery and he lived by conquest and he cut throats and he ran down enemies. And you know, there's a certain truth to that. David was a vicious and an incredible guerrilla warrior. That's how he started out, and that's how he of mighty men, and the men, the 600 men that stood by David all the days of his life could, that, that formed an inner circle of bodyguard, were known as the mighty men. They became the core of his army. They were the core of his, his administration. They were the core of his police force. Those men had sworn a loyalty to David, and they never broke that loyalty. And David lived in a world of danger. There was always somebody out to get him, and everywhere he went. And the worst thing he feared was betrayal. That one of those skillful, sword-wielding, hand-to-hand combat experts might fall upon David at an hour when he least expected it. If you want to find Christ someplace, you think about the betrayal of Christ. The turncoat among the inner circle of Christ. Who traitor, who as a traitor betrayed the Lord and turned Him in. There's an enemy. There's a distress. There's a danger. And he prays that the Lord would protect him from all of that. Verse 16, interestingly enough, asked that the Lord would be gracious and turn to him because he was lonely. Loneliness. There's a psychological condition. Being alone is not the same as being lonely. Sometimes you can be lonely surrounded by friends and loved ones and a spouse and others, family that you can have loneliness. That feeling of you are not only isolated, but you're insignificant. And that's down. That's why David says in the very first line of this psalm, that I lift up my soul to the Lord. That's the picture as we mentioned last week of the priest who lifted up the wave offering before the Lord and lifted up the drink offering before the Lord. And now David's saying, I lift up my whole self to the Lord as an offering, as a sacrifice to you. The Apostle Paul uses liturgical language and says that we are to give ourselves to the Lord as a, an, a, a sacrifice holy, reasonable, acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. There's that sense in which David has the longing himself for an ascension. He wants to be lifted up. He wants to be placed in the presence of God. 
David longed for that closeness to God and that place near God that he could call upon God. The same as the Apostle Paul cried out when he talked in Testament about how we're raised to sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's what the ascension of the Lord is. Because He ascended, we shall ascend. One of the sweetest doctrines in the church is the rapture of the church. Yeah, you heard me say it. That is that sense in which we are caught up to be with the Lord spiritually. And then one day we believe literally and physically that when Christ returns, that everyone that has died in Christ and everyone that is will be caught up, raptured up, ascended up to meet the Lord in the air and will ever be with the Lord. It's a longing of the heart after walking with the Lord for so long. You want to be caught up. Only Enoch walked with the Lord and he was caught up. That's what David wants for his soul. And that's what I think you want for your soul. Is it not? Well, there's a few other things here, and we're just about out of time. There was affliction in verses 16 and 18. It's about the affliction that comes upon him. And normally when the Scripture uses that term, it's speaking of physical illness. That's, that's the most normal uh, 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 thought behind the word affliction. But it could be an emotional affliction. It could be anything that, that in the words of, of Job, vexes the soul. An affliction. And here's what he says about affliction. He says, turn to me, Lord. Turn to me. There's the sense in which his face away and, 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 and turned his back on you and is alienated and walking away from you. There's the sense in which if it is left to go to the extreme would cause someone to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so the plea is, turn. Let me see your face. Let your face shine upon me. Turn to me in mercy and kindness and in, in uh, forgiveness of sins. And that brings up another thing that he had here. Sin, the guilt of his sin. The sins of his youth. Notice it's interesting, by the way, this, this is beautifully written in English. And in Hebrew, it's an acrostic poem. It's beautifully uh, written and strophed and, uh, and meter and time make a beautiful, beautiful poem. But notice the remembrances that go on in verses 6 and 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. That's the ground, that's the basis right there of the forgiveness of sins. So repentance is not based on how you how sincere are you in your repentance? How remorseful are you? What kind of regret do you hold? What's the quality of your repentance? Is it good repentance? Oh, that's secondary. It must be authentic repentance, but the basis of forgiveness is not that you're so sorry for your sins. The basis of forgiveness is that God has already punished that sin by laying it upon Christ and inflicting in His body the penalty that's due that sin. And so if you want... Forgiveness of sins when the guilt weighs you down. God of His mercy and His steadfast love that have been from of old. Far back as David can remember, God's been merciful. God was merciful to Adam. One of the sweetest stories you'll ever read in the Bible is the Lord preaching to Cain. Do you remember that back in the book of Genesis? 
when he, when he says to Cain, why are you cast down? And the Lord pleads with Cain to deal with his sin and, to, and said sin, warned him about his sin, said it's crouching at the door, it's going to overcome you. The Lord pleads with Cain to let it go and to not commit the awful sin that he did. And Cain ignores the mercy and the long-suffering and the gracious admonition and warning of the Lord. He goes ahead and commits the vicious act of murder. The Lord from the very beginning is infinite in mercy. That means His mercy doesn't have a starting place and it doesn't have an ending place. He was merciful before He was a Creator. And He's merciful for all eternity. His mercies, as we know, are new every morning and they're poured out upon us. And that's the, our forgiveness is the mercies of the Lord and the expression of the mercy of the Lord is the, the gift that He gave, the bestowal of Christ to save us. Remember your mercy, verse 7, remember not my youth. Forget that which has been forgiven. Put them as He will say in another place, as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea and remembered against you no more. You have a haunting memory of your sins, of your whole life from your youth up. Some of them involve deep regret. Some have had awful consequences in your life. But the Lord doesn't hold it against you. That item of evidence will not be presented in the courtroom of God's justice. Your conscience may bother you. Your soul may have been damaged. But God's bar of justice has already rendered a verdict and it says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And then he says another According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness. Well, David has other problems. He has heart trouble, verse 17. He has distresses, verse 17 again. He's got troubles. Uh, one of the things that uh, he worries about in verse 21 is his personal integrity. Uh, you don't have to be perfect to have personal integrity. None of us are sinless. But we all ought to be upright in our dealings with others. And David will never claim sinlessness, but he will plead before the Lord that as far as in me is, I have lived with peace with men. I have strived to do that which is right. Job argues his integrity before the Lord, that he has sought to do what is right. And there's a sense in which he has been upright before the Lord. And David wants that squared away. David does not want to be a rascal. He does not want to be uh, a, 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 some of these people that are always presuming of God. David will not adopt the philosophy that it's easier to get forgiveness than it is permission. He will say, I walk in my integrity. And this is another one of the concerns that he has. Then as I conclude, let me just tell you what his responses are. There's a bunch of them. You need to read these, of course, for yourself as we, are, as we had admonished you last week that this is a good, this is a good devotional uh, psalm. He lifts up his soul. He trusts in the Lord. He calls 
He w- abides in the Lord. He waits on the Lord with a expectation that the Lord will uh, deliver. He seeks refuge in the Lord. And He is very teachable. There's a whole uh, verse in this psalm, uh, several verses, no portion of this psalm that talks about the teachableness. Says, Lord, teach me your ways. Direct me in your paths. Show me the way. There's Christ. Christ is that, that truth and that life that we are to walk in. But then the one that's the sweetest to me that stuck out the most when I began to study the psalm and, and review it and, uh, and, and uh, let it sort of soak into me was verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those that fear Him. He makes known to them His covenant. The friendship is literally the secret of the Lord, the intimacy, the intimacy of the Lord. That's what David finds in the Lord is a, is a closeness, relationship. And all, here's a good place to preach. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him and He makes known to them His covenant. That's Christ right there. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. His covenant is in His blood, which we celebrate here in a moment. God takes those and makes known to them His covenant. The one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Several other places in here where Christ is mentioned, but that's enough for now.